0: Um, So it's great to be with you. If you were here last week, you will know that we, um, I I talked on the issue of why it's so important to be part of a local church. And the reason that I taught on that was because we are, as a leadership team, talking about thinking through how to help people join our church and get part of our church and get connected into our church in the most helpful and easy way Possible. In fact, that's one of the things we're quite passionate about as a church is that we make it easy for people to come back to God or find a place in His body. And we've been talking about this for a little while. And uh, particularly in big churches, it can be quite tricky to find your way in sometimes because there's so many people. And so we've been talking about how to do this and we've been thinking about this and designing a new process. And in the next year, we're going to launch something that we're calling Steps. Into kings, and we're creating basically three one off moments. They're not courses or groups, they're one off moments. Often, they'll take place during a Sunday morning, a bit like the baptism inquiry or a membership morning. And they, we're going to call them first step, next step, and leader step. They're the working titles for now. And these moments, I feel like, designed to help people discover who we are as a church, what we believe, what we're all about, because churches are different, aren't they? So, if you're joining a church, you need to know, well, what is this church and well, do, what do they actually believe about these issues. So to help people be orientated quickly as to who we are, and also to know how to find the best way in, how to, the best route for them into the church to find friends and play their part. And so last week I taught on why church is so important, and Andrew's going to speak next week. And we're really, we're teaching through some of the material we're going to teach on these moments, but also probably even more so what we're trying to do is teach some of the key convictions we hold about church, about discipleship, about growth, about leadership, and about serving. And today I want to speak on the subject and talk about the importance of leadership and the way leadership should operate in, in the church and how, how it should and shouldn't be done. Now, um, I just want to preface everything I'm about to say today by saying I believe in leadership. I've never yet been to any kind of, any kind of organization, whether it's a business, uh, whether it's a school, whether it's a church, anything where... If, if it works really well, well, you don't find leaders, good leaders at the heart of it, okay? So interesting, if you look around school, if you've got kids and you look around schools, you try to check out the, whether this school is the right, pretty much the question I'm often asking is, who's the head? Because I know if they've got a good headmistress or a good headmaster and they've, they're given long enough, you get a good one, you're in the end probably going to have a good school if they're given enough time and enough permission to actually lead. So I believe in leadership a lot. But what you're going to see is, is that what we're going to look at today is a completely different perspective on leadership that Jesus presents in John 13. And as I teach this message, I'm not going to use the phrase leadership very much or that word, because everything I teach on today is going to be relevant for everyone in the room, whether you would consider yourself a leader or not. I actually believe that everybody is called to influence. But this is going to be relevant to everybody, whether you would consider yourself a leader or not. However, I would also want to say if you are a leader or you aspire to leadership, it is particularly critical for you that you understand the principles that are in John 13. Because I believe if you do, it will help lead you into fruitful, healthy ministry. Whereas if you don't, there is a danger of exercising leadership in a way which is quite unhealthy and potentially quite damaging for the people around you. So I think it's relevant for all of us. So let's get into John 13. Now, how many of you ever get to go away, maybe with work or on holiday, where you're leaving other people at home behind you? How many of you ever does that? You've got to leave some other people at home. Okay. Very occasionally, I, I get to go away with my work, and I'm away for a night or two or three nights. And I've noticed this about myself, that when I go away, there are certain things which are always important for me to say at any time that become particularly important in that moment, I want to say, because I'm going away. Yeah, so I will. You know, there are certain key jobs I want to go. Please don't forget to. That's some of the things I say. But also, I want to get to Sarah and say I love you. And I I want her to know that. I'll get to my kids and tell them I love them. If no one is looking, I will get to the dog and tell her I love her too. I know that's sad, but I I do that, or I'll miss her. She doesn't understand. She just looks at me like she doesn't understand. And I say, I hope someone will walk you while I'm away. Okay. (laughs) Now the reason I say that is because in John 13 we are right on the edge of Jesus leaving. Now I know Jesus is here but physically, earthly, his ministry is coming to an end, okay? And because his earthly ministry is coming to an end, if you like, everything he says and does in this moment is particularly heightened. It's like, he's like, this is one of his final team talks. He's like, I need you to get this. I want you to understand this issue because he's about to lead. Uh, he's about to, his earthly ministry is about to come to an end. And it's in this context that Jesus now acts out possibly one of the most famous visual illustrations ever acted out about what a life, how a life should be lived, about what significance looked like, about what purpose looked like, about what greatness looks like. Now, I believe all human beings are desperate, rightly so, for a sense of significance and for a sense of purpose. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's Absolutely part of our DNA. We are hardwired for it. We are made to need and have a sense of purpose and significance. If you read the creation accounts in Genesis, if you know that at all, you'll know that God creates men and women and and the rest of the world and the universe. And then almost immediately, God gives Adam and Eve jobs, responsibilities. In other words, you have a purpose. He says you're going to have dominion and influence. You're going to care and cultivate creation so that it flourishes. So Adam and Eve are given right at the very start roles and responsibilities. It's built into our DNA that we need to live lives that count, that have purpose and significance. I think mean, that's an absolutely right and normal thing. The issue is, however, how do we do that? How do we live a life which is significant, that is, does have purpose? Because culturally in the West, we are taught that significance looks a certain way and a certain way only. In our culture, and I know not everybody in the room has grown up in the West, but we all live here now, significance in the West looks like power, it looks like fame, and it looks like money. It looks like being at the top of the ladder. If, if you climb there, the higher you climb up the ladder, the more significant a life you're going to live, right? That's the world we live in. Is that, would you agree? You see on our TV programs, reality TV programs are built absolutely around this idea. Getting known, getting famous means you get up the ladder, which means your life is more purposeful, more significant, which means that if you're at the bottom of the ladder, your life is insignificant and you are purposeless. That's how it works in the West. It tends to promote a sense of pride. Don King, the boxing promoter, once said, I never cease to amaze myself. And then he added, and I say that humbly. I would have loved to have heard his pride, proud version. would have been good. Muhammad Ali famously once boarded a plane, some of you may have heard this story before, and refused to do his seatbelt up. The flight attendant re- repeatedly said, Mr. Muhammad Ali, please, could you do your seatbelt up? The plane is about to take off. Muhammad Ali famously replied, Superman don't need no seatbelt, to which the flight attendant replied, Superman don't need no aeroplane. <laughs> I don't know if it's true, but it's a good story. Okay. But in our culture, we all want to be Superman because if you're Superman, then you're significant. That's what greatness looks like. It means our lives have meaning. It means our existence is validated. And this isn't unique to contemporary Western culture. It's always been like this. Ancient civilization was the same. The Greeks with the Olympics. The Olympics was basically an enactment of what greatness looks like, about glory, about coming first, what a hero was. Roman society was the same. Romans roughly divided society into two classes, top class and then everybody else. Let's call it business and economy. We know how that works, right? I have still yet to ever be upgraded. I have no idea why. But anyway, <laughs> please pray. But the, now, they had two types of society uh, groupings, but basically even those groupings they would subdivide like we do. And the idea being that whatever class you were in, whether it was top or economy, business or economy, whichever rung on the ladder, the idea of the game is to go a ladder rung up. Because the higher you go, the more significant you are, the more purposeful you are, the greater your life. And to descend the ladder is a total disaster. Jesus experiences this in the culture that he grew up in as well. It's it's pretty true, maybe of every culture, I don't know. Luke 14 is a great story if you get to read it. Jesus gets invited to dinner, okay? There had to be a health warning when they invited people to Jesus to dinner. They hadn't worked it out. The Pharisees, this guy invites Jesus to dinner and he invites a bunch of other Pharisees as well and their idea is they want to watch Jesus and see if he's going to heal this guy or not. But Jesus is watching them and he watches that all these guys are turning up for dinner and they are all basically jostling for the best seats at the table. So what does Jesus do? Jesus starts to tell a story About a wedding banquet, a meal, where everybody is jostling for the best seats at the table. And he starts to teach them, you shouldn't jostle for the best seats. It's not about where you sit. This was seriously embarrassing for the Pharisee who just invited him to dinner. He then follows it up with another little story where he says, and by the way, when you do have a dinner party, don't just invite all your friends either. As the Pharisee looks right and says, he's just invited just all his friends. This was not subtle. It was highly embarrassing. Note to self, for all Pharisees do not invite Jesus for dinner ever. It's a bit like when I was growing up. Friends of mine when I was about 17 or 18 would occasionally throw parties in their house when their parents went away surprise, surprise, their houses did not look quite the same at the end of the party as they did at the start. I was always thinking, why would you do this? Never, ever do that. Well, the Pharisees would be thinking, why did we invite this guy to dinner? His own disciples are the same. Matthew 20 is a hilarious story about James and John, who have clearly one night sleeping in their bunk beds, worked out. Let's work out if we can get the best seats in the house with Jesus in his kingdom in glory one day. And they decide at breakfast to ask... Them. I don't know if it's at breakfast, but they decide they send their mum in. Do you know the story? They want to sit on the left and the right of Jesus in glory. So guess what they do? They go, mum, can you have a word with Jesus about getting the best seats? It's crazy, but it's there in Matthew 20. And she turns up and says to Jesus, could, I have, could my boys have the best seats next to you, left and right? Now, Jesus has to kind of sort that one out a little bit. But it's still the same. They just, they want the best seats at the table. Where they want to be higher up the ladder. They want to be the greatest. We see it in society, in economy. We see it in ourselves. We, you can find it in churches. Church leadership, when it goes wrong, becomes all about power and prestige and platforms. Church leaders, like any other kind of leaders, can get it wrong. And when they do, it ends up that they use their positions simply to further their own aims and to help prop up their own fragile egos. That's what can happen in churches as well. So we have a problem that we need and want, rightly so, a sense of purpose. We should want to make a difference. We should want our lives to count as absolutely right. But we are surrounded by it and intoxicated by, it, if we're honest, a culture and approach that says the way to do that is to climb higher and to be better known and have more money and more power. But the issue is the higher you climb, what you discover is it's never quite high enough. Because it doesn't deliver to you what the sense of significance you really crave because it was never designed. Jesus knows this about us. He knows that about his disciples. And as he's about to come to an end on his earthly ministry, he decides to give them a team talk about what significance really, really looks like. So what does he do? Jesus gets up from the table. In a culture where respect and prestige was all about being served rather than serving, Jesus gets up from the, and leaves the table. Now, if you've got time, at some point, read Philippians 2 about the passage about Jesus leaving the Father's side and coming to earth. Because almost what he does in Acts here is he kind of acts out cosmically what he's doing in his ministry, leaving the Father. Jesus leaves the table and begins to act something out. He takes off his outer clothing, wraps a towel around his waist, pours water into a bowl and begins to wash their feet, drying them with a towel. Now, in this culture, and we kind of think, well, that's a bit weird, but in this culture, only slaves would do this. Okay. Only the lowest would do this. In fact, even some Jewish slaves wouldn't do this. Jewish masters couldn't command Jewish slaves to do this. They could, Gentile masters could command Gentile slaves. So only the very lowest of the low would do this. But Jesus gets down from the table and acts out the position of being the lowest of the low. And then he says, what I've just done for you, this is how you need to live now. This is what significance looks like. Now, in Matthew 20, with the kind of episode with James and John and trying to get the best seats in the house, surprise, surprise, the other disciples are not happy when they discover that James and John have tried the, back, the seats left and right with Jesus. Probably because they hadn't thought about it or sent their mum around first, okay? But Jesus says this in response to that moment. Verse five. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great, whoever wants significance, in other words, among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, if you want significance, if you want to lead, if you want to have influence, don't make your life all about climbing the ladder. But instead, go low. Aim The Apostle Paul says the same thing right at the start of Romans in that that letter. He he basically describes himself not as a citizen of the Roman Empire, which he was and he could have written, but he says this, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. That is a radically crazy phrase for him to write. It's like he's committing social suicide. One commentator said it's like this, it's like marking your Facebook status as loser and then hoping for a date. Now, the problem is we are so familiar. If you've been around church at all, you will know this story of Jesus washing people's feet. You'll probably know it. You kind of go, well, that's a nice story. We don't understand. We miss how radical this is. No one had ever spoken like this. No one had ever lived like this, and no one had ever taught like this. The only trajectory the human race had ever known to gain significance was up. That's the only way. You've got to go higher And to descend is a total disaster. But Jesus is saying, I'm literally setting you an example. This is how you are to live. This is the call. This is how followers of Jesus are to live. To give up their lives. To go low. Live your life, in other words, trying to lift up others rather than promoting yourself. Now, that is why it's so important that leaders or people who want to lead understand this because your aim, if you're a leader, is to serve and lift up others rather than lifting up yourself. It is radically countercultural, completely counterintuitive. It is totally foreign to us. And because it's foreign to us, we find it a real struggle to live like this. It's hard to live like this because we've been conditioned by our world and because by our own sinful nature to want to try and get significance, but we want to get it in a different way. Jesus, I believe, knows how hard it is for us. And I believe he knew how hard it was for his disciples. And so in John 13, it's subtle, but he gives them some keys as to how to live this out, how to actually do this. See, if you don't do this, it's like, it's a nice Bible story. That's all it is. It's a nice Bible. It's like a kind of little story that we tell children. Ah, oh, yeah, it's good to be kind. He's not saying it's good to be kind, <laughs> although kindness is absolutely in it. He's saying this is the trajectory and the motive and the agenda of your life, and you need to live like this now if you're going to represent me. He's saying this is your life, not with the red book and what's his name, and he come back and not that old program. He's saying this is the trajectory of your life now. The challenge is, can you live it out? And he gives us two keys to actually how to live it out if we're actually going to take from the Bible and go and do it. Firstly, he says this you need to aim low, but you need to think high. If you're going to live low, if you're not going to make your life about ladder climbing, the key is this think high. You need to understand, not just intellectually, but deep in your soul, how high. The calling is on your life if you're a Christian. Verse 20 of John 13. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Let me read you that again because we just missed that easily. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. Jesus is saying, you're going to be my representatives. My earthly ministry is coming to end. You will represent me now. I'm giving you an example about how to live your life. And I'm sending you. And in the future, when people accept you and accept the message, the gospel message that you carry and you present Jesus is saying, they accept me. As if, Jesus is saying, I was physically there in the moment with you. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, I want you to live low, but you've got to think high. You've got to understand how high the calling is on your life to represent me. If they accept you and the message you carry, they accept me, Jesus is saying. Paul says the same thing, 2 Corinthians 5, and you can find this in lots of places, but he says this in 2 Corinthians 5, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that's been given to us, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation, he has committed to us, The message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. One of the keys to actually living out a life where you live low is to understand how high the calling is on your life, how significant the call is over you, over me, how much you are loved. How significant it is to be sent. When Jesus says in John 15, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to bear fruit, fruit that will last. We have to understand how significant that is. How much weight there is in that. Now, psychologists for years have taught about how what we believe about ourselves what we think about ourselves has a massive impact on how we actually live. So if you've, got a, if you've got a phone, just get your phone out for a moment. If you're secretly sneaking a look on your phone, you're allowed to get it out now in public. okay? That never happens in church, I know. Get your phone out, wave it at me. Right, okay, now I want you all to take a photograph of yourself. If you haven't got a phone, I want you to get in somebody else's photograph, okay? Quickly, try not to take a photograph up your nose. I know the older the room, person in the room, the more likely you are to get one right up your nose. Take a quick photo. Right. Okay, have you got one? Now, whether you're any proficient at taking photos of yourself or not, have a quick look at the photo. All of us carry some kind of mental self-portrait, an opinion of ourselves, which has tremendous influence over our lives. Larry Crabb, who's a well-known Christian psychologist, written lots of books on counseling, writes this. Research has shown that we tend to act in harmony with our mental self-portrait. If we don't like the kind of people we are, we think no one else likes us either. And that influences our social life, our job performance, our relationship with others. I believe it seems to be true experientially, and it's definitely true biblically, that our effectiveness in terms of being able to be used by God to represent him effectively is so often directly linked to whether we understand and have grasped in our hearts how high the call is on our lives. In other words, how significant the call is already. Numbers 33 is a famous passage where spies are sent into the promised land to check out the land. Okay, the spies come back. Ten come back and say, there's no way we can take this land. It's, it's like, it's just, it's filled with kind of giants and problems and hurdles and, and there is absolutely no chance. And they use this phrase to say, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. That's an interesting phrase, don't you think? Like We seem so insignificant to ourselves in the land. So there's no chance. Two of them, though, Joshua and Caleb, came back with a very different report. And they say, we can take the land. If, if, if God is true to his word and if he is sending us, then the land, we can take this land. Now, same context, same circumstances, same place they visit, and yet totally different report. Why? Why? Well, I believe because 10 of them had totally failed to understand how high and how strong the call was on their lives. God comes again and again in the Bible to people elevating the sense of calling over them. So Gideon, if you know the story of Gideon, Gideon is scared and hiding. And he's hiding in a, in a wine press, He's in the floor when he should be out on the field, out in the open. He's hiding in, the, in a pit. <coughs> And an angel comes to him, and the first thing he says to Gideon is, God's with you, mighty warrior. He doesn't look like a mighty warrior. He's nothing like a mighty warrior. What's he doing? God is going, no, I'm gonna, I want you to understand how significant the call is on your life. That you're not insignificant, that there's purpose and the significant is great. James, Jesus says to Peter, Peter who's about to pretend he's never met Jesus, he's going to deny him to a servant girl, Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to give you a new name. Simon, he's going to, I'm going to call you Peter, and you're a rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. He's elevating the sense of significance. And I believe this is so significant when it comes to actually being able to live a life where we don't have to live our lives pushing and trying to promote ourselves. You see, when our sense of identity and call is low, Well, maybe we feel very broken and fractured, maybe because we've been through such difficult times, we will tend towards either thinking God can't use us at all, we will feel completely insignificant in ourselves, or we will tend towards using every opportunity that comes our way to try and climb a ladder in order to try and inflate our own sense of self-worth and significance. We will try to climb every ladder there is in order to prove to ourselves that we are someone when the sense of significance is low. But when you understand how high the call is on your life, when you understand how loved you are, how sent you are, how significant the call is, whatever the thing is you do, regardless of what you do, when you understand the call is so high, then you will be far more free to live lives without being noticed, without having to self-promote, because your sense of self-worth of purpose and of significance is no longer on the line when it comes to what you do. I think this is important for everybody. I wouldn't say this is particularly important for guys because we, we want to feel significant. And I think if you get this, it means you can give your life away. You can act like a servant because none of it can threaten just how significant the call is on your life. So that's one of the keys. I would say the other key is in verse 17, because Jesus is saying this. The more you give your life away, the more you live like this, the more life you will find. Verse 17. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now we can read that and go, well, that's nice. You know, basically, if, I'm, if I grit my teeth and I try and help some people and I'm nice to people, there may be, you know, God will be, you know, he'll, he'll be pleased with me, he'll smile. But I'm not sure that's what he's saying. See, the word blessed literally means happy. In other words, he's saying, if you'll live like this, the more happy, it's completely counterintuitive for us, isn't it? Climb the ladder and you'll be helpful, happy. But Jesus is saying, the more you live like this, the more happy, the more joyful the more contented you will be. We experience this, don't we, in moments where we're totally unselfish. Just those occasional moments, you know that? And he kind of goes, that felt really good. What is that? That is a little example of what Jesus is teaching here. Paul uses the same phrase in Acts 20, verse 35. He says, he quotes Jesus. He says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I have to remind myself that at Christmas, okay? It's more blessed. In other words, it's more joyful. It's true, isn't it? There's something that happens that we experience when you give. And Jesus, Paul is quoting Jesus, it's better to be like that. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you live like this, you will discover where the joy is, where the freedom is. In other words, he's not calling you to an obligation. He's, He's inviting you to a lifestyle of freedom. Can you see what Jesus has done? Just in a few verses, he does this extraordinary thing. He acts out, this is how you ought to live. You ought to live, go low. Make it your aim to serve others and lift up others. And at the same time, he has depowered, if you like, or undermined the two great fears that can stop us from living this way, that drive us to being ladder climbers. Namely this, that if I live like this, if I actually do what Jesus is saying, if I really do this, then surely this kind of living is going to lead me into being someone insignificant, a nobody, and I will waste my life. I'm going to miss my life if I do this. And those fears drive us. But Jesus is saying, do you know what? You don't need to be fearful about living a servant-hearted, hidden life. That somehow if you do that, it makes you into being a nobody because you are already a somebody. That's what he's saying. You're already significant. Think high. Understand deep in your soul that you are loved and you're sent And also, you don't have to be fearful that if you give your life away, if you try and promote others ahead of you, if you seek to serve rather than be served, that somehow you're going to miss out. Because if, Jesus says, if you live like this, actually what you find is you will find your life. This is how you win, in other words. Matthew 6 is one of my favorite passages where it's all about anxiety and worry. And we tend to worry, right, and get anxious. And he's he's saying, You don't need to worry. You don't need to worry. And right at the end of chapter six, he kind of goes, If you seek me first, your father will give you all these things. And all the things you worry about, if you put me first, actually, you don't need to worry. God will take care. But right in the center of chapter six of Matthew is this little phrase which everything hinges on. He says, You of little faith. In other words, the issue is, Can I trust him? That's the issue. Will I trust him that he is true to his word? That if I do what he says in John 13, if I go, do you know what? I'm not going to push. It's not to say don't want influence. Want influence. If you want to lead, lead. I encourage you to do it. But don't make promoting yourself the agenda. If if I decide I'm not going to do that, I'm going to lay that down, I'm going to make my life about trying to promote others, the issue is, can I trust him that he's true to his word? That he will look after me. That I will find life. The more I die to myself, the more life I will find, that he will be true to his word or not. That's the issue. Jesus says this in Matthew 16. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I want to encourage you. You can trust him that what he's saying is true. This is how we should live, and this is how we should lead. Let's stand together, and we're going to pray.